Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. So we are casting vision as a church, if you didn't know, and we're calling this Hope 2031. 2031, because we're trying our best to look 10 years out uh, and describe what we see about this church. If you could travel in time and spend time in and among this church, what would you notice? What would be distinctive about Hope in 2031? Well, first we talked about vocation, and then we talked about holistic Christian maturity. Today, we will begin to talk about redemptive hospitality. Not just hospitality, which is an amazing, good, important, vital thing, but redemptive hospitality. Because we believe hospitality is one of the most central uh, things that God wants His church uh, to participate in, in His mission of redemption. This isn't just a nice thing to do. We believe that this is central to how God is calling his church to extend uh, his redemption and the message of his redemption. Um, Actually, when we envision this church in 10 years, one of the clearest things we see is a thousand or more natural conversations happening each week about how Jesus changes everything. And that's if you wanted to count, and we don't want to count. (laughs) Uh, But if you did, the people of hope in 10 years are having a thousand conversations a week. That implies growth, but it also implies redemptive hospitality. There are three components to redemptive hospitality. I call them lost arts, the lost art of conversation, the lost art of neighboring, and the lost art of table setting. First, this morning, we're going to talk about table setting. Table setting is just another word or another way of saying making room for others in our lives. Let's pray before we talk more. Lord, would you speak for your servants, our listening, speak from your word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Well, this year we celebrated in the Hack House two 10-year birthdays, our son Henry and this church. They were both born, if you can believe it, at the same time. And this is significant because we thought the birth of Henry would be the death of this church. He was born very early, and the church was just about to launch. And as a result of his early birth, uh, we had to be very, very careful in his first year plus of his life to protect his lungs from any infection, frankly, which meant our home became a quarantine zone. And this was confounding to, to my wife and I because God gave us a house just prior to this, and we saw our house as more than a place to just cultivate our family, we saw our house as a place to cultivate our church. 
Um, we saw our, our home as a community center as well as a church. We saw our home as a dining hall. We saw our home as a guest house, anything but a quarantine zone. And, uh, and so we were asking ourselves, how on earth are we going to start a house church or a house church movement when our house is in quarantine, when it's shut down? Well, exactly a year ago, uh, our entire church was faced with this same problem. Well, let me just say, number one, God was faithful 10 years ago. Our church survived our quarantine and grew in some very important ways. And so today, in 2021, I am trusting that God is the same. And that hope will come out of this difficult year, yes, limping, but with a renewed purpose and vision. And part of this vision is a re-emphasis on redemptive hospitality. We want to recover this lost Christian art of hospitality because hospitality is one of the main ways we can share the good news of Jesus to this hurting world. And this world is hurting. This world is an inhospitable world. Authors Dustin Willis and Brandon Clements, who I'll be talking about a lot in this sermon, they point out a few years ago that people primarily view their homes as a place for isolation, to get away, relaxation, to chill out, and entertainment. If you let people into your home, and that's a big if, it's usually for entertainment, not hospitality. And if that was true a few years ago when they wrote this book, how much more true is it today in light of our very real concerns? What the world needs, what our neighborhood needs, what our city needs right now is redemptive hospitality more than ever. And so how can we recover this? And as we look forward into the next 10 years, even the next year, how can we start cultivating again and afresh redemptive hospitality. Well, we need to set our focus on God. It's about God's hospitality, first and foremost. And that's where we need to start. And we need to start in three areas. We first need to recover the hospitality of God as a theme in Scripture. And then we need to actually receive it personally. And then and only then can we reflect it into the world. And so let's just look at those each in turn. To set the table for others. To be a, a table-setting, redemptive community, we need to first see that God sets the table for us. And we need to see that this is no minor theme in the scriptures, but this is a major theme. In fact, it's no exaggeration to say that the entire Bible from beginning to end is the story of God setting a table for us. If you just open your Bibles to the very first verse in our Bible, Genesis 1, 1, we see that first God sets the table in creation. It says, in the beginning, God created, God created the heavens and the earth. And then later, God creates humanity in his own image and provides everything they need. Genesis 1, 28 captures this by saying, God blessed them. God blessed them with all kinds of food, with all kinds of beauty. 
And this is, my friends, divine hospitality. God didn't need to create the heavens and the earth as a home. And God certainly didn't need to bless humanity and provide everything they needed. But he does. He doesn't need to. After all, he's God. He's Father, Son, Holy Spirit for all of eternity. He's already, as theologians say, full. God is full in a loving triune community, three in one. That's fundamentally, by the way, what it means to say God is love. That, that, that he exists eternally in a loving triune relationship. Father to Son, Son to Father, Holy Spirit. Theologian Kelly Kapich, he says, God doesn't have some inadequacy in him. Think about this. He says, it's the overflow that's the basis for creation. It's the overflow. There's no inadequacy in God inherent. So creation is an overflow. There's no need in God. And so the picture we get from Genesis, the very beginning of scripture, is that God builds a house. Why? Because he wants to. God makes us in his image. Why? Because he wants to. He provides everything we need. Why? Because he wants to. He is not needy. He is generous. The Bible begins with generosity. Creation is divine generosity. It begins with God making room. Making room. In Genesis 1, God sets a table. I don't know if you've ever been to a meal uh, where the table was lovingly set in advance intentionally for the guest. Uh, it's one of the best parts of being invited to a meal. There's a candle. There's usually the, the really good silverware. There's cloth napkins. Um, there's usually fresh flowers on the table. And it's all, in one sense, totally unnecessary. It's totally flagrantly unnecessary. But in another sense, it's the epitome of overflow. It's the epitome of, of needless generosity. That's what it is. A thoughtfulness, an extravagance that says to the guest, I see you, I value you, I make room for you. This is a table set for you. And that's what we see in Scripture. The very beginning. God sets a table. But the second theme in scripture that flows from this is a tragic theme. It's that we flip this table over. We turn this table over. We walk away from this table. And so our life becomes a search for a substitute that will satisfy. Do you know what I mean? So God gives us a table. He gives us everything we need. We flip the table and we start looking for substitutes. That's what life is marked by right now. This is what the Bible calls sin. It's rejecting the abundant offer of table fellowship with God for substitutes. Readers of the Bible throughout centuries have remarked about the utter insanity of sin. If you really just think about it, nothing makes sense about Adam and Eve's turning over this table, rejecting this offer of abundance with God, sitting with God in fellowship with him. For eternity, They had everything in front of them. One theologian, Cornelius Plantinga, he puts it this way, quote, Sin is the wrong recipe for good health. Sin is the wrong gasoline to run human life on. Sin is the wrong direction and the wrong road to get home. In other words, sin is finally futile. Sin is futile. It doesn't make sense. 
God sets the table and we walk away. We reject the offer. But the third theme, the third theme in scripture uh, is the most shocking, frankly. It's even more shocking than our turn away from it. It's that God resets the table and he resets this table at his own expense. Why? He still wants to be with you. That's why. He tells us right after Adam and Eve turned the table over in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he, God makes a promise. God, if you look at Genesis 3.15, God promises a champion, a champion, uh, someone born of Eve, born of Eve, uh, who will crush Satan, sin, and death. But to set this, and, and he will crush this to set the table again. But to do this, this champion must bleed. That's what we read right away in Genesis 3.15. It's a resetting of the table. But it's at great cost. And that cost is something that God himself takes on. He absorbs the cost. To eat with you. A costly redemption promise. This costly redemption promise that we see in Genesis 3.15. It basically is like an acorn that grows into a tree throughout the entirety of the Old Testament scripture. So even in Leviticus, and I know many of you struggle with this book, but it's basically, this book is basically God resetting the table by grace. That's what it is. Um, In fact, uh, Leviticus scholar Jay Sklar talks about Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. You should look this up. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I, even I, have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. This is, friends, God's hospitality. He is creating a way in this. He is creating a way to make atonement, to make us basically be able to be at one again with God. We walked away from him, and now we have an opportunity to be at table fellowship again with the holy God. And that's what Leviticus 17.11 promises. But Sklar points out that in this verse, it's God giving the sacrifice. He says, quote, God turns the idea of sacrifice upside down. See, we think sacrifice is us sacrificing ourselves in order to make right with God. But in Leviticus 17, 11, we see something totally upside down. He says, it was not just what the Israelites gave to the Lord. It was first and foremost something God gave to them in his grace as a means of atoning for sin and achieving the forgiveness they so desperately needed. And the reason this is astonishing is if you look at verse 11 in Leviticus 17, God himself emphasizes that he's absorbing the cost. He's providing the sacrifice. He says, I'll quote again, Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I, even I, God says, have given it to you. God resets the table at his expense, which is ultimately demonstrated in the death of Jesus. Jesus is the divine follow-through of God's promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He died. He shed blood. He was bruised. Why? So that we could have a place at the table. 
Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. To be brought near is to sit with God at the table. That's what God shouts in the story of Scripture. I want to eat with you. I want you at my table. God is the divine table setter. In eternity past, in what theologians have called the pactum salutis, which means the salvation pact, Father, Son, Holy Spirit joyfully agreed on a rescue plan, joyfully agreed on a way to sit with you. I want you to view it as a dinner invitation. (laughs) The Father sins, the Son saves, and the Spirit applies this dinner invitation. This is why Paul can say that God loved you before the foundations of the world. He has been planning this meal for eternity. And so, have you accepted the invitation? Stop eating food and drinking drink that doesn't satisfy. Come to the table that he has set and eat. Jesus has made it possible for you to be fully known and fully loved at his table. At his table. And so we need to recover the hospitality, the table setting God. Which takes us to our second point this morning. In order to exercise redemptive hospitality, in order to set the table for others in our lives, we must first receive this offer from God. We must first sit down and eat, and not in some cognitive, brainy way, like all of us needs to rest in our place at the table. And for us to do this, uh, we, and when we do this, only when we do this, could we ex- then extend that to others. I asked you a moment ago uh, to sit and eat with the Lord. And maybe right now, if you're totally honest, you're hesitant to do that or you're resistant to do that. I want to explore for just a few minutes why that might be true. More importantly, I want to explore how Jesus dismantles those excuses to resist the table offer from God. I think in general, I've observed three main reasons we resist the table offer of God. Number one, we are guilty. The first reason we refuse God's hospitality is because we know we are guilty. We have done wrong. And we know it. Our guilt is like a rock in our shoes. Like Lady Macbeth, we have red stain on our hands uh, that cannot be washed out, we feel. And so we refuse the invitation to dine with God because after all, God knows all. But... Consider Jesus. If you want to know what, some, what, what somebody is about, then pay attention to what they do. And the Gospels say this about Jesus. Jesus came eating and drinking. The Gospel of Luke, for instance, theologians have said, is basically the story of Jesus eating and drinking to the cross and then eating and drinking some more. So just Luke, we'll just look at Luke. Luke chapter 7, Jesus anoints the woman at Simon's house 
uh, at a dinner party. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus eats with Mary and Martha. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is a rude guest at a dinner party hosted by a Pharisee. Luke chapter 14, Jesus teaches a parable about who should be invited into a banquet. And Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of a runaway son who then is welcomed back home with a banquet. In Luke 19, Jesus eats with Zacchaeus. In Luke uh, 24, Jesus reveals himself by breaking bread at Emmaus. And that's just the Gospel of Luke. Don't forget the feeding of 5,000, the feeding of 4,000, the wedding of Cana, the breakfast by the sea, and Matthew, uh, and the tax collect- Matthew, the tax collector's home, the dinner party there. And when you add all this up and more that I haven't mentioned, it's no wonder that Jesus has the reputation of being a glutton and a, and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I'm quoting scripture, Luke chapter 7, verse 34. A friend of sinners. Here's the scandal of the gospel. God sets the table and Jesus comes to dine at it. And who does he invite? Who does he sit with? The sinner. The guilty. Guilty men and women. I read a book this week called Contagious Holiness. It's a scholarly examination with tons of footnotes and all that of every meal in the Bible, especially the meals of Jesus. And Jesus we find out steps into a culture that believed that sinners did not belong at the table. And if you ate with a sinner, their sinfulness would be contagious, which is why meals were boundary markers. Uh, Meals came with high fences because you wanted to eat with people that you wanted to be like. And so you didn't bring sinners to the table because you thought their sin would be contagious and make you um, unholy or impure. If you ate with a sinner, their sinfulness would be contagious. But Jesus came, and if you read the Gospels with this lens, and I encourage you to do it, you're going to see something different. Jesus came and he dined with sinners, believing that his holiness was contagious. Knowing that he would not catch their guilt, but that they would catch his holiness. And so if you're resisting your place at God's table this morning because you're guilty and you know it, Jesus says to you, indeed, Indeed, you are more guilty than you even know, Jesus says. But I want to dine with you. My holiness is contagious. It will rub off on you. Indeed, all who trust in me are clothed with my righteousness. That's what Jesus says. In fact, the condition, the one condition to receive the forgiveness of Jesus is to own that you are a guilty sinner. Come, come and dine at his table. I think another reason we resist the table offer of God is because we feel unwanted. Uh, we, we resist the table of God uh, because of sh- shame. We feel unwanted. Well, Jesus breaks this down too, over and over again in the Gospels. I want you to think of the feeding of 5,000 with me. I've taught this passage before, and I make points about how I think this reflects the manna giving in the wilderness of Israel, which I think is totally true. Uh, but I've never thought about this until preparing for this message until now that Jesus is in the feeding of 5,000 setting a table. And who is invited? Who's invited to this feeding of 5,000? Frankly, everybody. Everybody. 
And this is shocking in the cultural climate of his day. Uh, there's, there's, there's so-called undesirables present, undoubtedly, in this 5,000, which uh, is an incredible amount of people. There's no purity cleaning at this meal. There's no religious uh, seating arrangement at this meal. Uh, there's no boundaries to keep the impure out and the pure in. No, one scholar says, quote, this is an undifferentiated mass of people, okay? A mass of people, some undoubtedly unclean uh, and others clean, biblically defined, some more faithful regarding the law, others less so, the law of God. The food itself, this scholar asks, is it clean? Has it been properly prepared? Look, if you feel unwanted, Jesus sets the table for you. He wants to dine with you. He wants to dine with you, even if you are unwanted. And then another reason you may resist it is because you are rebelling against God. You're running from him. You're rejecting him. Well, I want you to consider Peter, if you're still with me, who denies Jesus at the moment Jesus was most vulnerable. Maybe you know the story um, Peter, in the Gospel of John, I think this is summarized very well with the charcoal fire. Maybe you remember the story where Peter warms his hands over a charcoal fire. And he, in that moment, in John eighteen twenty five, if you want to look, as Peter is warming his hands over the charcoal fire, he denies Jesus. He denies Jesus. Someone asks him about Jesus, and he says, no, not going there. But there is a second charcoal fire in the Gospel of John, and it's John 21, 9. And this is a charcoal fire that Jesus builds. This is a charcoal fire that Jesus builds in advance. Why? To grill fish. And Jesus is, this is after his death and after his resurrection, and he builds a charcoal fire on the, on, the, on the shore, and he grills some fish, and he sets a table. And who does he invite to this table? Yes, Peter. Peter, the one who denied Jesus at the charcoal fire. Jesus doesn't lambast Peter because of his rebellion. He tenderly even redeems the symbol of his rebellion and turns it into a table of belonging. God is inviting you, no matter what your defense is, rebellion, shame, guilt. He's inviting you to his table, to be his guest at the table he sets, enjoying the feast that he prepares. And then maybe take a nap, <laughs> rest in his presence. I had a Bible study leader in college uh, who was older than us. He was married and he made us a meal every week. And then he stoked his potbelly stove. He had a wood-burning stove in his living room, and he stoked that. And then he would have a Bible study. And he was foolish because he assumed we would all stay awake for this Bible study. The truth is, most of us fell asleep during this Bible study after eating a meal and sitting next to this uh, potbelly stove. And he let us nap. He didn't lambast us for napping. He was just glad we were there. See, Jesus is inviting you to his table. 
to be his guest, to drop your resistance, to drop all the ways you're trying to prove yourself to him. Jesus covers that all. I mean, just imagine receiving a dinner invitation from Jesus. And in fact, I encourage you to do that every single morning when you wake up. Imagine receiving a dinner invitation from Jesus himself saying, dine with me. I want to be with you. I want to be with you. Receive the hospitality of God. And then lastly here, I want to talk about reflecting the hospitality of God. How do you know you've dined with Jesus? Uh, We start to reflect the table-setting nature of God into the world. That's how. We start to set the table for others because of the table that has set for us uh, in Christ. So in every case in the Gospels where Jesus dines, there are two responses, grumbling and delight. Grumbling from the religious Pharisees, delight from those uh, whom the Bible calls sinners. And then those who delight in Jesus, those who receive the hospitality of Jesus, what do they do in return? They, they enter into a lifelong discipleship with Jesus. It's amazing. When Jesus sits down with you at the table, he always makes, he always makes demands. He says, he says, come follow me. And what's amazing is the religious Pharisees reject that and reject the whole idea. But sinners, those who know their need and who enjoy the presence of Jesus, what do they do? They drop everything. And they enter into a life of discipleship with Jesus and a life of hospitality to others. They are uniquely equipped to bring the hospitality of God, the table-setting God, to the world. And we see this reflected in the New Testament. We see it reflected in the community of Jesus uh, as recorded in the scriptures of the New Testament. And so we see this call to extend hospitality. That word in the New Testament um, is is love of other. Okay, And so we see this uh, uh, being commanded in the life of the community of Jesus. And so Peter, Peter himself, charcoal fire Peter, okay, who received the hospitality of God, says this in 1 Peter 4, 9. He says, show hospitality to one another without crumbling. This one another is the church family. Paul says something similar to the Romans in 12, 13. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and show hospitality. Seek hospitality. And then later in 15, 7, in a verse that's very important, the life of our church, because of our mission statement, Paul says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. As Christ has welcomed you. Christ invites you to his table. Now, set the table for others. The hospitality of God should flow out of um, this kind of receiving of God's hospitality into the church family. That's what these first two verses talk about. We make room for each other as a church, um, both a local church and a bigger church, a corporate church. We need to make room for each other at the table. And we're going to talk more about this in weeks to come in our vision casting when we talk about being a purposefully cross-cultural church. There ought not be divisions at God's table. There is one table, not two. And so we extend that. We also extend it to strangers. 
the earliest Christians didn't respond to God's hospitality by only extending hospitality to each other, to Jesus' followers. Uh, the earliest Christian communities extended it to the stranger. So Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And this is rooted deeply in, in, the, in the, uh, the hospitality of God that we talked about earlier. So Leviticus, there's Leviticus again. Who knew Leviticus was such a hospitable book? <laughs> Listen to what Leviticus says, 1934. says, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Jesus says this, quotes this. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Did you catch the gospel logic here? We love our enemies. Why? Because we're loved enemies. We show hospitality to the stranger. Why? Because we were once strangers, but God invited us to his table. When I was a kid, my parents sent me to a manners school. You can laugh. Uh, It was a weekly class designed to instill in me um, etiquette, good etiquette. Um, Etiquette means, and I looked this up, a code of polite behavior in society or among members of a particular profession or group. Now, I'm not sure how effective these etiquette classes were for me. Um, You can ask my family uh, who dined with me. But what was, and I'll say this too, what was considered polite in the 90s is maybe not what's considered polite today. Uh, It's very different. But I am convinced that there should be gospel etiquette and that there should be maybe even gospel etiquette classes for church (laughs) as a family. And uh, we need to practice and learn and cultivate how to embody and reflect the hospitality that God has for us into the lives of others. We, I think, are going to actually offer something like this as a church moving forward as part of our vision. Uh, Hospitality or gospel etiquette. And, and so, lot to, lot to unpack with that, but just let me offer a few suggestions as we close this morning about what that would look like. Number one, redemptive hospitality will be hard. God resets the table for us. But remember, there's blood on the floor. It's costly. And so it is with us. We often confuse hospitality with entertaining. They're two different things. Entertaining is having people into your lives or or bringing people into your lives for the fun of it. It's fun. But hospitality is making room for those who need it. And anyone who's done real hospitality knows it's hard. It's really hard. So Dustin Willis and Brandon Clements recently wrote a practical book that I referenced earlier on hospitality, which I recommend to you. It's very practical. I think it's a good book to read. Um, And and from which I gathered a lot of these ideas that we're going to close with. They suggest remembering um, that the word hospital is embedded within the word hospitality. And I think that's very helpful. In fact, I've driven by the hospitals in our city since reading this suggestion, and I've thought often about if we recover this idea of being a hospital as a home, uh, that will keep the distinction between entertaining and hospitality alive, won't it? Because that's what we're doing. If we remember uh, that a hospital is a place where we let people in who are desperate uh, to tend to their needs and to bring healing... 
then our home is going to be a hospital. And we need to realize that if it's going to be a hospital, it's going to be costly to us. It's going to be hard. Number two, redemptive hospitality ought to be habitual. Habitual. We just have to get in the habit of being hospitable. Habit experts talk about the keystone habit. So the keystone habit is like one thing we do and get in the habit of doing, which then sets off a chain reaction of other habits that, um, in our life. And this can be a good keystone or a bad keystone, right? And so flossing is often regarded as a good keystone. If you floss, chances are you have a cascading effect of other healthy ch- uh, behaviors in your life. That's why they say people who floss live longer, not because Keeping plaque out of your teeth makes you live longer, but frankly, because it's a keystone habit. Flossing is a keystone habit. Hospitality must be a keystone habit. It, um, I want you to see it this way. Something you do, like brushing your teeth. So Willis and Clements have something they call the always rule. The always rule is a habit that if you have two minutes to spare and you see a neighbor, always say hi. Always get to know their name if you don't know it already. Or always say their name if you already know their name. Take a moment and connect whatever that looks like. Whatever that can look like in this COVID era. Always think of ways to connect. Scripture commands us to make room. Especially for those whom Nick Wolsterstorff calls the quartet of the vulnerable. In in the Bible, we see this quartet of the vulnerable. We see the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the impoverished. And so we get in the habit of making room for the quartet in our life. Redemptive hospitality is is habitual. It also must be humble. Humble. We don't make room in our lives. We don't pursue hospitality to be cool or because it stages well on Instagram. No, we embrace hospitality uh, for the most humble reason. Because we ourselves have been invited to God's table. And we engage often, therefore, in what Willis and Clemens call reverse hospitality, which is being good guests to others' hospitality, Um, being good borrowers in our neighborhoods, uh, being good receivers of other people's gifts and offerings. And then lastly, and importantly, redemptive hospitality, if it will be redemptive, is honest We're honest about our deepest value and our deepest motivation as Jesus followers. Our deepest love is Jesus. As Jesus followers, if you are an honest person, Jesus will come up in your hospitality. This isn't a bait and switch. This is living with integrity. This is living with integrity. It's it's simply... Uh, talking about how the hospitality of Jesus is challenging you to make room for other people in your life. And so redemptive hospitality is, in a way, fundamentally evangelistic. It fundamentally is good news sharing. That's what that word means. We share the good news of Jesus setting the table for us at his expense. You know, the reason Jesus ate so much is not because he loved food. The scriptures don't give us that impression. Or because he simply wanted to break barriers because he was an iconoclast. Uh, 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 you know, the first punk. No, that's not the reason he did this. He did it because it was a potent way to fulfill and communicate his unique mission of redemption. God's resetting the table by grace. 
at the cost of his blood, Jesus. The same must be true for hope. We must not pursue redemptive hospitality because it's cool, because it's trending. Um, no, that's not why we're doing it. Uh, we know when we're pursuing it correctly, it's the opposite of cool. It's the opposite of trending. It's often unnoticed and grueling. We're going to need support to do this. Counselors in our lives, church support in our lives. Um, we're going to need Jesus to do this. See, we believe that extending the welcome of Jesus is our mission. We believe redemptive hospitality is the how of our mission. And so our mantra as a church moving forward here is going to be hope hosts everywhere. In 2031, we envision over a thousand conversations about Jesus across the city. Why? Because we are setting tables, literally and figuratively. We're making room. And we're inviting Jesus as a guest of honor. Lord, we do pray that this vision would um, unfold. And it would unfold in your time. And that it would unfold in your wisdom. But Lord, that we would indeed pursue this as your church. Thank you for setting the table for us. And then in our rebellion, resetting the table for us at your own expense. We love you and it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.